Hello and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Patati and this podcast is part of the CHS Alliance initiative to cultivate care and compassion in aid organizations. I have some questions. How can we have an us without a them? How can we offer a compelling vision that is adequate to this moment? These are some questions that you'll hear me talk to today with Brian Stout of Building Belonging. I wanted to talk to him as the Alliance begins to support the co-creation of a culture lab. After a career in international aid and development, Brian became the founder, curator, and network weaver for Building Belonging. This is a place of collaboration and action for people who are actively trying to live into the post-supremacist world where everyone belongs. They're committed to transformation at every scale, individual, interpersonal, societal, and structures and systems. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So welcome to the podcast, Brian Stout. Thank you. Happy to be here. So nice to have you here. Um, before we get started, do you mind introducing yourself for those listeners who might not be familiar with your work or the work of building belonging? Sure. Yeah. So little story of self here. Um, Grew up in rural Southern Oregon. It's a small community of about 20,000 or so. And my parents did the Peace Corps in Guatemala before I was born. And I think that has had an influence on my life in a number of ways. I uh, graduated from college in 2004. So it was the time of Darfur in Sudan. Samantha Power had just written her book, uh, American Age of Genocide. I was really influenced by that and had this perhaps naive uh, middle child belief that surely in the 21st century, we can agree not to kill each other in mass. That felt like a, a low bar for humanity. And the thesis I wrote in undergraduate was exploring where our social movements had gone. So I was really influenced by the 60s and 70s here in the United States. And there were no large scale movements calling the question about what was happening within our borders. There was uh, a mobilization against the Iraq war, uh, after 9-11, and I was really disenchanted by what I saw as a real lack of political interest on my own campus and wanted to understand that. And my perhaps not so sophisticated answer at that time was alienation. Uh, we were separated from ourselves, the other power, history, our agency. Uh, I got involved in anti-genocide work. So I worked at an organization called Facing History and Ourselves based in Boston for a couple of years. And then I went to graduate school and I'm the only male in my family who's not a lawyer. So I, I did look at law school and the ICC had recently set up and I wanted something farther upstream. I wanted not a way to punish violence after the fact, but prevent it from happening in the first place. So I went to school for conflict management and specifically mediation. Uh, I mentioned I'm a middle child, I'm a second of four and that, that kind of runs through me. Uh, after grad school, I joined USAID. So I worked there for five years, based mostly in Washington, D.C., but also overseas, and focused for the first couple of years in East Africa. And my first kind of, <laughs> first, second, third, um, real inflection point came during the, the famine in Somalia in 2011, where I found myself um, in rooms with 30 other people who looked like me, white men in suits, um, setting U.S. policy, and most of those people did not share my values or goals. I was representing USAID and the humanitarian side of things with a bunch of folks who were focused on counterterrorism and other objectives. 
and those were often conflict. And uh, the perspective I was advocating for uh, never won. Uh, and then the movements I've been waiting for arrived. So 2011 brought us Occupy, the Arab Spring, and I had a real crisis of identity. What do I do here? The Freedom Plaza outside my window in Washington was where the Occupy camp was up. And I was working on Somalia policy with zero impact, if I'm being honest. And so I switched over to the Middle East, worked on Middle East policy, had the exact same experience, me and 50 other white guys sitting in a room. I mean, obviously, I'm overstating the case slightly, but not too much. Um, we've all seen those, those pictures. And again, experienced the limitations of my own ability to make any useful change. Um, went to Burma in 2012 and 2013 during what has very tragically been exposed as a false democratic transition. Uh, pretty brutal to watch what's happening there. And had my kind of final reckoning in the <laughs> aid industrial complex, which was I lost faith in my ability to know whether I was doing good or causing harm. So I'd, I'd long held a critique of the system, but had generally exempted myself from it. Like, oh, well, sure, you know, neo-colonial, problematic, but I'm one of the good guys. Surely I can do some useful stuff within the system. And I lost faith in my ability to do that. So I left um, USAID, uh, joined the Gates Foundation. <laughs> Uh, in Seattle, my wife and I moved there in 2014, and I was there for a couple of years. I knew I wasn't going to last for a bunch of reasons, which I'm happy to speak to. Uh, and then in 2016, I quit, and it was because it was the Trump primary, and I saw happening here what I'd spent my whole life working against overseas. And it occurred to me over the sort of next couple of years, um, while Trump came to power, that maybe this is not a very deep epiphany, but it struck me that the movements I've been fighting against my whole life were organized around belonging. So literature is super clear that the path into violent extremism is significance and belonging, and then ideology, whether it's ISIS or white nationalism, the same playbook. And the movements I've been waiting for and searching for my whole life were finally here. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, you know, the immigrant justice movement, indigenous rights. And those movements too were all organized around belonging. We belong, we matter, we're here. Uh, so the question I, that took me into building belonging is, can we create an us without a them? And I, I believe the answer is yes, in my heart of hearts, uh, but it's never been done at the scale that this moment requires. That's a bit about me. Uh, I didn't really speak to building belonging, but maybe I can pause. Wow, Brian, I, I feel like we have so much in common. Uh, first of all, I also studied conflict management, I think <laughs> at the same place you did. Okay. Um, I was also following closely some movements against war, the war in Iraq, and I had different conclusions, but we can get to that about how uh, some of the things I observed, there wasn't real cohesion, the mm. kind of cohesion I would think would be needed to really provi have provided a different outcome. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's it's connected to what you're saying. And I also was involved in responding to refugees coming out of Somalia into Kenya. Mm -hmm. So I was into Dab. And I also yep. encountered, um, in many cases, uh, real interest in let's deal with the terrorism in many refugee situations. Let's deal with this part of the problem, but not look at root causes. And then I can relate to your self-reflection in a question, am I doing more harm than good? I see so many humanitarians who are really grappling with um, this idea when they reflect back on what was their impact. 
And when they see the way some organizations are operating, uh, some of them, some people call it moral injury. <laughs> it's the idea of I'm so upset with what's happening. I don't want to be part of it. I don't like what I'm seeing. It's not in alignment with my values. And uh, a real groundswell of interest, especially as you were saying, with all these other movements happening contemporaneously. Um, so can we change how we work to be more in alignment with the values? And, and looking at what happened in some of the political contexts since 2016, a real question, why? Why is this happening? Why do we see, uh, some people call it political tribalism, but that word ha has a lot of problems with it. Um, Amy Chua wrote that book about how you have um, an us and a them, and it creates this kind of sense of um, strength because we're together. So I'm really curious if you could just say a little bit more about having an us without a them and how it ties to the building belonging. Yeah, big question, ongoing inquiry. Um, yeah, I, I think I think we have to go way upstream. My own sense is part of what this turns on is how we understand human nature. And I think we've been sold a bill of goods mm -hmm. by dominant culture. Mm -hmm. So the dominant narrative of human nature is that we are tribal, that mm -hmm. we compete for scarce mm -hmm. resources, that we are inherently competitive, uh, mm -hmm. that we orient towards an us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's certainly partly true. We are capable of that. And I think it misses the point that the other side of the equation is at least as true, and there's a lot more evidence for it, which is that we are deeply interdependent creatures. We're fundamentally relational. Mm -hmm. We are primed in, for care. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no baby that is born into this world that survives without care. So mm -hmm. the way we enter the world depends on belonging. Mm -hmm. Powell, who I, I look to a lot as a source of inspiration in this work, says that Maslow had it backwards, right? That belonging is that first layer. Because if mm. you don't belong to anyone, you die. <laughs> that's, a, that's a core condition of, of life. So for me, I think so much of what is happening is people are looking for belonging because our experience of moving through the world is non-belonging. Our mm. systems are deeply hostile and we sense mm. that. Mm. And so quite rightly, we seek out a place to belong, which is a universal human impulse. Mm. And I don't want to blame people for how they meet that need. I think it's on us to ensure that they can meet it in a way that's pro-social. Mm -hmm. So if we aren't offering a place of belonging and white nationalism is, can we blame people for that choice? Yes, of course, at some extent, we should hold people accountable for their, their actions. And I think it's incumbent upon us to offer a more attractive invitation. Mm -hmm. Part of my understanding of the rise of authoritarianism is that mm -hmm. Most places it's happening in the world, including mm -hmm. here, uh, India, right, <laughs> Hungary, yes. Poland, Austria, right, you name it. Uh, it's happening democratically. We are electing authoritarians. And so if you believe in democracy, which I do, mm -hmm. then we are not offering a very compelling alternative to mm -hmm. authoritarianism. So I think it's on us to issue an invitation to belonging mm -hmm. that is actually adequate to this moment. And so far, part of my frustration with electoral politics globally mm -hmm. is our answer to the authoritarian rise has been milk toast moderation, which in my view is part of what got us here. Macron is not going to lead us to freedom. Joe Biden, let's watch the immigration crisis on the southern border with Haiti right now, is not mm -hmm. going to lead us to freedom. And people know it, including those of us who voted for those people. Yeah. And if we can't offer a more compelling vision that is adequate to this moment, I think we will continue to lose. 
So speaking of vision, within the CHS Alliance, there's a big, what ties us together is this idea, we want more accountability in aid, we want more quality, more effective assistance to support people in crisis. And the vision there is, can we, within our own <laughs> organizations, within our own teams and within our own selves as individuals, can we cultivate an approach that acknowledges our interdependence, that acknowledges that um, at heart we, we, we do care, although sometimes we can forget that when we're in a context of bullying, dysfunction, competing for money, these things kind of overtake us, but at the, at the root, our vision is to find or create spaces for people working in the aid sector to practice. Uh, what does it really look like to have compassion with accountability? What does it really look like to have solidarity with equity? What can we do together to support each other because it takes practice and to change, it takes time. And sometimes uh, we can lose ourselves along the way. On your website, I saw uh, you talk about uh, Bobby Harrow's cycle of liberation that talks about how transformation happens at the I level, the we level, the world. Um, and you were just talking about liberation uh, as you were speaking. So I wanted to go ahead at this moment and ask you if you could say a little bit more about how building belonging approaches the idea of having a, a theory of change. What is What do you think it will take to transform yeah, maybe I can bracket that into two different questions. One is uh, the role of Bobby Harrow's work, and then maybe a second one on the purpose of building belonging, if that's okay. So yeah, my attraction to Bobby Harrow's work was born out of my frustration with my own experience in the social change ecosystem, whether that's the industrial complex or broader social justice movements. And my experience was we would do systems change work over here. Go to the Gates Foundation, a bunch of big brains talking about systems. And then I go over here and do my societal transformation work, my interpersonal change, you know, anti-racism training, conflict transformation work. And then I go to still a third place to do my personal work, you know, my therapist, do some yoga, right, and spirituality. And I found that really um, alienating and just inconsistent with my own experience of how change happens, that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. These things are all related. Pretending that they're separate is not gonna lead us anywhere. And so when I finally found Bobby Harrow's piece, and she wrote this back in, you know, her first uh, cycle of socialization came back in like the late 1990s. And how come no one's ever heard of this person? Uh, and she's amazing. And her cycle of liberation is the update to that, which says, here's how we're patterned into these cycles of domination, you know, rooted in patriarchy, white supremacy, these systems of oppression. And, and here's how we get out. And so liberation, a cycle of liberation says, look, we were patterned into this. No one chose to be, you know, a, born into a system of domination. And the way out is by recognizing that transformation is interdependent at all levels. So I cannot change by myself. If I go straight back into a dominant institution, I'm gonna get flushed out or crushed. And I think asking people to take responsibility for individual transformation in that context is unfair. Uh, it's just not um, an honest reckoning with what's happening out in the world. So I wanted a place that would do that and I didn't have it. And I don't trust myself enough to do things alone because I have blind spots like we all do. And so I wanted to be in a place that would, you know, as with what it seems like you're trying to do at CHS is move towards accountability. 
but we don't know what that looks like. We haven't experienced it. Our culture is deeply unaccountable, um, especially for people who hold my identities. And how would we know what that looks like? So for me, this is the pivot to what Building Belonging is trying to do, is we are a container for transformation. We're supporting transformation at every level. So we want to create and therefore to practice a world where everyone and everything, right, non-human beings as well, belongs. So we do this in three ways, and I'm happy to get deeper into this if it's of interest, but I'll try to keep it high level for here. The first thing is we try to identify the core design principles of the world we long for. So if you situate yourself in 2050, you've got a magic wand, everyone and everything belongs, there is an us and no them, uh, what does that look like practically? And what is each domain of practice? You know, what is, what is the, does the aid sector still exist? What does it look like? Uh, what about conflict transformation? What about narrative work? What about somatics, right? Um, and we try to articulate what those are <clears throat> based on what we can see. And I can say more about that. And then the second piece is, okay, none of us have any experience living in such a world. Let's try to do it. Um, in my world, I don't think there's really money, to be honest. But I have never lived in such a world. So how do we use money in the real time in 2021 in a way that gets us closer to the world we long for? And we don't know the answer to that. So we practice together and see how it feels. And then that refines the principles that we had started with. And then the third step for us is, okay, so what? That's good for those of us who are practicing, uh, but there's a bigger world out there. And how do we collectively decide where to intervene in that world uh, to move us closer to building a world where it belongs? So there I'm, I'm very influenced by Danella Meadows' work, uh, systems transformation, leverage points in the system. So can we work together to choose, okay, you have decided that the lever you're gonna pull is in the aid sector, international development. Great, Let's, what is the most catalytic thing we can do in that space to bring us closer to where wherever it belongs? I don't know, you don't either, but together we can make some bets. What about the finance system? What about real estate? What about narrative work? Can we look at those spaces and decide what is the most useful thing we can do that will move us closer to a world where everyone belongs? Fantastic. In our, in our culture lab, um, we're interested in painting a picture together of the world that we want and work backwards from there. And there have been some suggestions to go through an awareness-based process to get there. Some people talk about appreciative inquiry or theory you. Um, do you have opinions or thoughts on process to get through how you decide together where you want to catalyze the change? Yeah, I mean, just to be super transparent, like all of this stuff is is up in the air, right? This is a an open experiment in real time and something that we are in deep inquiry around. So I can, you know, I can't really speak for building belonging here. I can speak for myself and how I think about that question. I think the, the piece that feels grounded is that transformation happens best in a small group, right? In a small container. And I haven't yet found another way to do it that has the requisite depth. And the idea that we play with here is this kind of paradox that on the one hand, I don't think we can transform any faster than the speed of belonging. And Jordan Lyon is a member of Building Belonging I gave some credit for that for that phrase, which is kind of a, a pivot on speed of trust. So I don't think we can move faster than the speed of belonging. That is the pace at which transformation can happen. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, we have no choice but to rapidly accelerate the speed of belonging. I think that's what this moment demands. 
So the question for us is, well, how do we do that? And we don't know, uh, we're experimenting. There are a couple of things that feel important. One is we have to have maximal diversity. So part of my frustration with the aid space is it's very um, dichotomized around, this is the US over here, this is international work over here. And we all, you know, part of the, we talk about a fractal and building belonging influenced by Adrian Brown's work around emergent strategy. And the fractal has a bunch of different components to it. One is that sort of the way you are is the change you make, right? But the other piece of the fractal that feels important to me is, um, can we have the right quote unquote folks in the room? Mm. My experience pretty consistently has been, if you get 20 guys who look like me in a room, yeah. you're going to have limitations in what we come up with because mm. we don't see things. Mm-hmm. And the answer is not to get all of us out of the room and have 20 different people in the room who look like the same identity, but to have a diversity of folks in the room. Mm-hmm. So the groups we bring together in building belonging are intentionally curated for diversity across as many domains as we can. So geography, sector, issue area, identity, uh, mm-hmm. how you think about the world, where you orient towards I or we or world, mm-hmm. uh, which is how we think about the individual, interpersonal, and business transformation work. And then the question becomes, across those tremendous lines of difference, can we build belonging and do it as rapidly as possible in a virtual context? Because Mm-hmm. I believe that we can't actually get the requisite diversity mm-hmm. if we're all in the same geography, that there just isn't enough. Um, we need folks who are in very different places, making very different sense of the world. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm still on target with your question, so let me pause there. Yes, yes, you are. You are. And um, I've noticed in some of my attempts, which aren't as well thought through as what you're describing here, I've noticed some barriers that come up when trying to create a space for people from different perspectives to come together, um, one of them being language. I noticed in an event I organized recently that there were some people that were quite quiet and I didn't know if it was because they were bored or they're checking their emails. And afterwards I found out it's because they weren't comfortable speaking in that setting uh, with their level of English because wasn't something that they had grown up learning and and they felt a bit uh at least one of the people I talked to said I'm happy to talk to you one-on-one I just don't feel comfortable speaking in front of everyone else um so I I, I'm I'm curious if that's coming up in some of your experience yeah for sure no language justice is a the speed of belonging requires the ability for everyone to understand and contribute yeah, I mean, we haven't solved that in building belonging. It's a it's a major barrier to our ability to move effectively into other spaces. I mean, English is the only language in the world, I think, where more, more people speak it as a second language than the first one. And we know why that is, right? And so even trying to transcend the colonial paradigm requires that we use the colonial language in order to communicate our way out of it, which is its own um, limitation. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, my aspiration would be we have multiple languages, uh, multiple places to play. We have not been able to do that yet. And so it's just an aspiration I hold and a, and a challenge I think we all face. So don't have a good way through that except to agree and say, yep, that's a barrier. <laughs> I'm going to try the Zoom. Uh, Zoom has a channel for interpretation, I'm going to try it and see for my next event. But uh, I, I wanted, I have another question that I had planned to ask you. But before I do, uh, I wanted to link two things you have said. This idea of 
behaving the way you would like others to behave. I'm trying that myself. I'm trying to be caring and compassionate and accountable and work in solidarity, but also make space for others and defer as appropriate. Um, and you mentioned earlier, you can transform all you want, but if you go back into a, an, a system that's not supporting you, you might not, or your chances are compromised there. Uh, and I've seen this, I've seen this a lot um, in the aid sector. The reason I'm interested in this work is because such high rates of, of burnout, depression, anxiety, trauma, um, negative coping mechanisms like alcoholism. You see a lot of people, they'll, they'll take a break from their humanitarian career. They'll try to recover. They'll try to develop some good practices to do self-care, et cetera. They come back into the work environment and it and it's very hard to stay grounded and centered and in that uh, it's very easy to get kind of brought down by some of the dynamics um, that you, you mentioned. So um, I just wanted to, to say that <laughs> we, we are trying to change ourselves. And sometimes it's hard to sustain that. Yeah, I feel that. So um, I, for example, uh, try to send signals that I'm trying something different. So for example, in my email signature, I picked this up from someone I, I worked with at Oxfam. In my email signature, I, I say, I'm only working X amount of days. I'm trying not to respond outside of office hours and please help me stay accountable. So if they see me writing emails at odd times, although that could be confusing if you're in a different time zone <laughs> and you and I are in different time zones, uh, but I, I'm looking for, very simple ways to kind of signal the change I would like to see, this kind of permission to others. You don't have to constantly work all the time. You can take a break. Um, and I noticed when I was emailing with you, you sign your emails in community, which is kind of a, in a similar way, signaling what you're trying to achieve. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, I definitely resonate with uh, your instinct and in community I got from Chanel Matthews, who's a, a narrative strategist with the Black Lives Matter Global Network and someone I look up to and deeply respect. And when I first saw in her signature block, I thought, oh, that's it. That's what I've been looking for, right? Like I've tried in solidarity, like best, warm regards, right? And nothing quite landed for me. And in community felt right. It's like, yeah, that is both where I'm writing from. I don't speak really for myself ever because I, what is an independent self if not someone in relationship to others? And it's an aspirational statement, right? I want to be in community with the community I'm from uh, and I would like to be in community with you. And the you could be an immediate aspirational sense. Yes, I'm looking forward, Melissa, to being in community with you. Or it could be, I'm actually not in community with you and we're a long ways from that, but in a world where everyone belongs, may that someday be possible. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a subtle invitation, like you said, and I think part of the dance I do, and I suspect you do as well, is like, if you have one foot embedded in dominant culture, which if you're working in AIDS or philanthropy or you name it, we do, um, and you're trying to move into a different way of being, if you move too far too fast, there's a rupture. The bridge between those two worlds you're trying to hold together breaks. Um, if you go too far to dominant culture, you lose touch with the, the world you're trying to create. If you go too far into that world too quickly, uh, the world you're trying to bring along with you can't follow. And I think that Don Powell talks about that work as bridging as sort of this connective tissue between these two worlds. And it's brutally difficult. And so if there are little things we can do, 
like in community to signal, hey, you know, come join me over here. Uh, hopefully that can be some small part of it. Uh, that's so interesting you say that. I've been trying to promote within uh, one of the teams I work in uh, different ways of working. For example, I'm inspired by sociocracy in terms of how you make decisions, not necessarily by consensus where everyone's cheering, yay, we love this idea, but there's this idea of consent and there's no serious objections to the idea. If there are serious objections, you can talk through it. There's less hierarchy, more clear roles and goals and, and whole bringing the whole person. And I, I've been trying to introduce that into some of the, the places that I've been working. And someone said, you're moving too fast. You, you're not bringing everyone with you. You need to make micro changes that are more easily absorbed or taken on board or build, building kind of a positive feedback loop with people kind of grow their appetite. So I imagine as you were talking about moving at the speed of belonging, it's similar, this idea of wanting to move and accelerate, but not go where the train has left the station and you left a lot of the people on the platform. Yeah, totally. I, I think about that, the metaphor I sometimes use is we have to build scaffolding, right? So the, the work we're in is trying to build this world where everyone belongs, but you can't just build it. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to build the roof, you have to build the scaffolding to get to the roof so you can lay it on there. And we all need different amounts of scaffolding depending on where we're coming from and what our prior assumptions are. And, you know, as important as the proactive act of building something, the scaffolding, we have to deconstruct. Uh, we have to unlearn really toxic and harmful patterns of behavior, which is painful and hard to do and very difficult if there's no container to support that work. So I think we have to hold a lot of grace for ourselves uh, and each other uh, is one piece. And the, the second piece, and this is maybe just a recency bias since I was listening to it yesterday, Brene Brown had this podcast uh, episode recently on receiving difficult feedback. And she used a metaphor of the balcony and the dance floor to talk about the different levels of um, both scale and approaching a problem, sort of meta and micro. And she connected the two with this metaphor of the stairs, right? Like from the balcony, you can see the whole dance floor. You can see what's happening. And from the dance floor, you're in it. You know, you're, you're embodying the thing. And each has its own advantages, but you can't jump off the balcony. Um, you'll break your legs and you can't fly to the balcony um, from the dance floor, you have to take the stairs. And so part of the work of leadership, she was arguing, is to help people get from one place to the other um, without losing them. If you run up the stairs and someone's on the dance floor, well, you know, uh, and knowing when to go up, when to go down is part of the, the discernment. And yeah, I think it's an ongoing challenge of like, what does the moment require? Is it that we attend to the eye? or the we, or the world, and how do you know when different among us have different instincts on that question? Brian, do you wanna say more about building belonging and what it does for some of our listeners who might be really intrigued by the approaches that you were talking about? Sure, so basically what we've done so far is we've had a, an intentional growth model that is built around these curated cohorts. So we've had six cohorts so far since we launched last spring, basically one every season. <clears throat> and they're curated fractals of the whole. So we want the cohorts to look like the world we want to live in to the best of our ability, right? And the language issue you raised earlier, the 
barrier, internet access is a barrier, right? There's lots of things that make this difficult to do, but to the best of our ability, time zones are a challenge. Bring in a fractal of the whole that is representative as diverse a perspectives as we can get together. And so ideally the world, the global majority is majority POC. So the cohort should look that way. Um, different sectors, different issue areas, et cetera. And then the cohorts themselves, this has been a, a moving target for sure. Each, each cohort's looked a little different around how long they run, what we do together, right? What's the, the overall arc of the journey? But it's a, an arc of transformation that introduces what is the container that is building belonging? So I, I spoke earlier to the, the three purposes. There are four principles that form the container. And everyone we invite in, it's my sense that they are already embodying these four principles. They might just use different language. And so for us, it's the, well, I'll speak for myself, though I think this is hopefully probably true across the, the community. Belonging is the first one. We're in the business of a world where everyone belongs. So Mickey Cashton, who is another friend and mentor of mine, talks about what would it look like to build a movement for the 100%. That's everybody. There is nobody who's left out. Um, and that's really, really hard. Most people aren't ready to do that. So that's a precondition. The second is this concept of I, we world, which is recognizing the interdependence of transformation. If you're only interested in individual transformation, this isn't the place for you. If you only think about the world and systems transformation, this isn't the place for you. The third piece is this idea of the fractal, which I alluded to earlier, which is how you are is what you do. Um, there's more to it than that, but that basically we are trying to practice in a microcosm, the very patterns we wanna see shift at, a, at the macro level. And then the fourth piece is, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but I, I, I think the term is really apt, so I, I still use it, which is post-oppositionality. And it's a, a term I get from Anna Louise Keating, who in turn uh, got it from Gloria Anseldua. So Gloria Anseldua was a Chicana feminist activist in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, who did a lot of writing about um, the border. And part of what she came to is that we need a post-oppositional approach to everything. So if we are, he talks about white supremacy and patriarchy, if we're opposing that and we let that define the terms of our engagement, then whatever solution we come up with is still bounded by those terms. So it's rejecting the thing, but it's still accepting that dichotomy and it limits our imagination. And so Anna Luis is very careful not to say, not to reject oppositionality. If you have fascism, there's a role for anti-fascism, right? Like that is essential. And let's not be limited by that, that, pol that polarity. The world we long for is neither fascist nor anti-fascist. It is something else entirely, the proactive um, vision that's anchored in our imagination for the future. So my sense is the folks that those principles for me emerge from my own kind of look at what's happening in the world. And if you were to sort of attach principles to the most effective, interesting social movements of our time, what are they doing? What are they doing well? And of course, like this is, you know, my own personal bias, I could be totally wrong about this, but my sense of what's emerged is, is those principles. And so for us, that provides the, the kind of boundary conditions of imagining the world we long for. So when I said earlier, design principles for the world, well, your design principles and mine might be very different. <laughs> so how do we ensure that the thing that emerges is not fascism, but is a world we long for? There have to be some boundary conditions in place. And so for me, those are those four. But part of what we do is introduce people to that framework and then the invitation, which is brutally difficult for all kinds of reasons, is to step into self-organizing and to thinking about what we can do together. 
And we all come at the challenge of stepping into our own agency and power in different ways. For someone like me, I'm a white man. For those of you who can't see me, I'm very tall. Um, if I've been socialized into taking up space and believing I have a right to power, then part of my work is to speak less, uh, maybe to step back. And if you're socialized, you know, feminine, or if you're a person of color and you've been talked over or spoken down to for much of your life, part of your work is to speak up more and take up more space. But how do we know which is which in any given moment? And how do we support each other in the work that is ours to do? And how much of how I'm reacting to you is my own projection um, from other people like you that I've encountered in the past versus how much is present and real between us right here, right now is a really difficult thing to discern. And, you know, I think I struggle with this all the time. And the feedback I get is often diametrically opposed. Someone will say, we need you to um, step back here. You're, you're too heavy handed. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, okay, you know, that's good feedback. All right. You know, maybe I need to, and then someone else will say, you need to step in more here. You're, you're denying your own leadership. This is, you're, you're causing us to spin. We need much more assertiveness here. I'm like, oh, now what, you know, what do I do? Who's right? And usually they both are. So how do I, how do I move um, in that context? You know, I think last thought here, I, I'm going on, I know, is uh, to the title of your podcast, I think part of the answer is this embodiment, right? And for most of us, we are deeply disembodied human beings. I've been socialized into disconnecting from my body my whole life. And so the work of tuning back into what I'm feeling and sensing and trusting that, trusting that that has any utility at all, is uh, incredibly difficult and I'm learning to do it. And usually if I'm being my best self, which I'm not always, there's some wisdom there that wants to emerge, um, but it's not the only wisdom. So how do I stay embodied and relational at the same time remains. If you figure it out, please let me know. That's a beauty uh, from the interviews that we've done and the gatherings we've held. No one seems to have figured out the perfect formula, but there's a real appetite to discover it together, to try new things, and then realize that maybe if we do find something that works now, maybe later needs to change. It's this fluidity. Um, and your point, and getting the feedback, I had a similar experience with the, with the we were designing the culture lab, and uh, I was facilitating, but I felt somehow it's not appropriate for me to facilitate because we're having a conversation about power in the space and what is the power of the facilitator versus the power of participants and how does it connect and I admit it I'm not comfortable here I would really like it if others would share the facilitation role or I could step back anyone want to volunteer to step up and uh, at that moment the participants said for now no keep going in this moment, we're looking for leadership, in a sense, or someone to kind of connect the dots, but maybe later that could change. So for me, it was a bit of a relief to have just set it out there. I'm not comfortable. I don't know what I'm doing. I would really like it if someone else would step up and the people almost giving me permission, just try it. We, we need it. And that's, that can change. But for now, we need you here. And I think it's good for leaders to show that they're not always 100% sure what they're doing and they need some support. And yeah, so as yeah, you were saying that, I, I thought of that. 
No, and it's just one thing to, to piggyback on there is, um, so we have two little kids and our, our eldest is six and she is an assertive eldest child, right? Which I love about her. And I've caught myself wishing that I had gotten when I was a child, the same feedback I'm trying to give to her, which is like, you also need to practice followership, right? I want you to practice leadership, but mm -hmm. please don't only do that because mm -hmm. we also need people to follow. Mm -hmm. And I think we need a more aspirational verb than follow because mm -hmm. follow has not always good connotations. So part of the work is to let go of those connotations and hold on to the word. And part of the, mm -hmm. the work I think is to find a better aspirational verb. Mm -hmm. And for me, the one I've come to, just in case it's helpful for folks mm -hmm. listening is, I want to experience other people's gifts and I want to experience other people's power. And so for me, it's not, you know, if you have baggage with leadership and followership, mm -hmm. which most of us do, for me, it's like, I can't get where I'm trying to go if I don't experience your gifts, because I don't know where the hell I'm going. I mean, I do, I'm kind of going <laughs> in that direction, but I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And so if you never offer your full gifts, if I don't allow you, or if I don't mm -hmm. experience them, Mm -hmm. We're not going to get there. And so mm -hmm. for me, it's a reminder that in this moment where if I'm feeling a tension between my own instinct to pull in a certain direction and mm -hmm. someone like sense resistance, I'm like, well, what is the gift this person has? You know, what mm -hmm. is the power that um, I could experience from them that would help us both? So it, it allows me, you know, maybe it's just a mental judo, but it helps me think differently about what wants to emerge in that moment that allows me to, to step back and say, mm, maybe there's something I need to listen to here. It's true, and, and it shows that you value people. I, I, there's a real hunger in the circles that I'm part of. Um, this idea we we want to know that we're valued. Of course, you could do some analysis there and say you you also should value yourself. So we could talk about that another time. But I want to thank you for sharing your gifts because by coming on our podcast and by speaking to us and giving these great ideas and you often reference other people that we can go deeper on in terms of some of the, the names that you, you mentioned referencing their work. So I think some people listening might say, oh, I want to read more, for example, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, or I want to try this. So um, are there any final things you'd like to share with our listeners who'd like to um, learn more about your work or go deeper in some of the things you've mentioned? Yeah, maybe just a thought for, for this space, which is I, I think those of us in the international development sector and the aid sector struggle deeply with our sense of hypocrisy. And that is because at some level, we recognize that the system we're in has been shaped by the ongoing legacy of colonialism, systems of white supremacy, patriarchy, and imperialism. And for those of us who hold privileged identities, whatever culture we're coming from, if you are a white person going to work in a non-white country, it smacks of saviorism and what Teju Cole famously called the white savior industrial complex. And hopefully, if you're in the system, you're self-aware enough to have some understanding of that. But then what do you do with that? It feels crappy. And so I've seen three strategies to, not, to sort of navigate that dissonance. The first is you get defensive and reject it. And now, sure, you know, yeah, is neo-colonial and problematic, but that was in the past. We're better now. We're, we're doing good things for the world and people are starving. So, you know, leave us alone. I would argue not a very productive strategy, though I myself have employed it in the past. Uh, the second is to exempt ourselves from it. Say, okay, sure, system's problematic, but like, look at me. I'm a good guy. I'm doing some good in the system. And yeah, it's flawed, but like, you need good people. I've tried that too. 
in the 30s, you leave. You say, all right, I can't. There's nothing I can do here. The system is too flawed. I got to get out. And I did that too. And I am super excited that your podcast exists, that the Alliance has taken on the questions you're taking on because I think these initiatives are essential. The sector Mm -hmm. is not going away. Mm -hmm. So either we make it better or it continues to do the harm it's been doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's unilaterally bad, right? There's obviously lots of good things there. Mm -hmm. And our work is to make the system more accountable. So the questions you're asking, Mm -hmm. we have to ask, Mm -hmm. and they are not going to ask themselves. So there's a role for human agency in that space. Mm -hmm. And we have been socialized, especially in the halls of power, especially coming from a place like the US government or Mm -hmm. a large INGO Mm -hmm. or the United Nations. Mm -hmm. We don't invite accountability. Those systems are designed to reject accountability. And so- I'm really influenced to throw one more name at you. Uh, Oh, I'm writing notes. (laughs) By uh, (laughs) disability justice advocate, Mia Mingus. Mm -hmm. And she reminds us that you cannot hold others accountable. That's not how accountability works. We can only invite people to hold themselves accountable. And so for me, the work that I try to do, and I think maybe the invitation to folks who are in the aid sector is to recognize that, um, yes, these systems have been born out of systems of oppression. And guess what? So have all of our systems. So no one's immune. And let's not beat ourselves up for choosing this lever of transformation. You know, the answer is not to go join the private sector or the nonprofit industrial complex. Like Mm -hmm. they're all problematic. Mm -hmm. And this work of change is incredibly difficult. Mm. Number one. Number two, it's essential. Like we have to do this work and it's not going to do itself. And number three, I think maybe just to to close on a positive note, like it's incredibly liberating. Like mm-hmm. you are not alone. Like the Melissa Patati is not alone yeah. in this work. There are people listening to this podcast who share a belief that it can be done differently. Increasingly, the younger generations are not settling for not bringing their full selves to work. Like I don't want to be in a place where I have to check out 40% of myself. Mm-hmm. And finding others who share your convictions and who are committed to trying, because we're not going to succeed, but we're going to try mm-hmm. to live in integrity. That to me is the experience of belonging. And once you taste it, there's no going back. That to me is a transformative experience. So just to maybe a note of, uh, you know, caution and encouragement to folks who are doing this work in a deeply problematic sector, which by the way, is all of them. Keep doing it uh, and do it with integrity and invite yourself into accountability. Excellent way to end this, Brian. And I have to say what you proposed is quite consistent with this idea of being compassionate with yourself by saying, okay, this sucks. I don't like it. it. It doesn't feel good. We're not alone. This is an issue. Of course, our, our system was born out of oppression. Other systems are born out of oppression. So it's not just us. There are many people who are grappling here. But So we're kind to ourselves and we're supporting each other and giving ourselves hope that it can be better. So I love it. Thank you so much. I'm going to listen to this over and over, taking good notes of all the great ideas that you've given us. I think a lot of people will be inspired. Um, Any final shout out you want to give your website or social media account? Yeah, thanks. I would just, I would just add grace and, and challenge, right? Like I want people to push ourselves to be accountable and to know when are we doing our best and when are we kind of, kind of (laughs) maybe should step up a bit more and speak a little more truth to that power. Uh, yeah, so we have a, a slightly dated website, which we're working on at mm-hmm. belonging.us. A YouTube channel, we've hosted a series of 
what we're calling conversations and transformation, which are ongoing. There's actually been one on, on conflict transformation with some international development folks. Uh, sets of space. I myself write, I can't remember, Melissa, if that's how you found me, but I keep a newsletter at on Substack, that citizensvote.substack.com. And that is me speaking for what I'm seeing. So it's not a building belonging place, but just a place where I reflect about some of the trends that I'm seeing and invite other people to <laughs> tell me what they're seeing and how I'm wrong. Um, so those are places to track. And yeah, and if, if this is a place, if this invitation calls to you, um, you can join us right now. We're bringing folks in through this cohort model, which has its limitations to be very clear, mm-hmm. but uh, you can, on building belonging to us, you can navigate and request to join our network. And the next time we bring in a new cohort, well, actually one just ended yesterday. So our next mm-hmm. one will start maybe in a month or two. Um, plan up there and uh, we'll be in touch. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian with Building Belonging. I think you will be having some more people signing up to get into the next cohorts. Uh, We want to stay connected uh, with what you're doing. We feel that we belong just by listening to you. So thank you so much for your time and wish you best of luck as you move forward with this exciting experiment. Well, cheers. Yeah, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, I hope this is helpful. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Brian Stout, Building Belonging. You can visit Building Belonging at www.buildingbelonging.us. You can also follow Brian on citizenstout.medium.com. I'd like to give a big thanks to our editors, Yada Abayid, and to the initiative supporters, the CHS Alliance members, the Government of Luxembourg, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in the Netherlands, We'll be back soon with another episode exploring care and compassion in aid and development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.